Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane! Everybody strap in! That was Samuel L. Jackson recording the made-for-TV version of his famous line from Snakes on a Plane. For Halloween, I thought we'd talk about something that scares a lot of people, snakes. I invited Robert Jaden, an evolutionary biologist who studies poisonous snakes, and I brought back Chris Deem, an environmental ethicist. We talk about what makes snakes scary, how did snakes evolve, and what do snakes taste like. I am Shani Luft, professor of religion and associate dean of general education at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, and this is my podcast, No Cure for Curiosity. Today, I am curious about monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday podcast. Chris Deem, I should introduce you as our returning champion because you've done the podcast before and the episode you did on environmental ethics is the most downloaded episode of this podcast. Clearly, the audience is clamoring for more Chris Deem on this podcast. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that I'm the environmental ethics coordinator at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, but I might just say that I'm the no cure for curiosity champ now. (laughs) I just put out all the academic stuff. Uh, I teach courses in environmental philosophy. Uh, I coordinate the couple of different environmental ethics programs that we have here at the university, uh, and I've been doing it for uh, really all of my adult life at this point. Thanks for joining us, Chris. I'm really happy to have you in this conversation. Thanks, Sonny. We're also talking to Robert. Robert, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so I'm uh, Robert Jaden, and I study uh, snakes, in particular venomous snakes. I study the evolutionary history of various organisms, but uh, snakes are my favorite. And I'm a lecturer here at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. I teach a variety of courses, everything from genetics, sort of very small, to things like comparative vertebrate anatomy, which is uh, more on the macro scale. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate you joining us. And Robert suggested this topic on snakes, and I jumped at it, even though it's not something I know very much about. But Chris, because of your background in uh, environmental ethics, I was also, to me, there's some interesting environmental ethics questions about our relationship with snakes that I thought we might get into a little bit. Robert, since you suggested this topic a few months ago, the very first question I wanted to ask you is, have you ever been bit by a snake? Yeah, students ask me that quite a bit. Um, I know I'm venomous snakes, uh, yeah, quite a bit. But venomous snakes, no, I've not been bit. I can't say that I'm overly cautious. I don't I don't handle venomous snakes too often anymore. But when I was an undergraduate and then graduate school, I definitely handled a lot of venomous snakes. I've only had like one interaction with a snake in public that I can remember. It happened like more than 15 years ago. I I was in graduate school at University of North Carolina. I was taking a hike and I had my young son like up on my shoulders and I looked down and there was a rattlesnake that was rattling and staring at me that I had not heard before. I was surprised how close I got before it caught my attention. And the two of us, me and the snake, just stared at each other. I felt like both of us were terrified. And it was rattling. And it kind of was, I mean, I don't know how to interpret when a snake is about to attack, but I just kind of slowly backed up and the snake just kept its space and it worked out fine. And the thing I'm I'm interested in, Robert, is how dangerous is a situation like that? Um, The nice thing about venomous snakes, for the most part, at least pit vipers, um, is they kind of know they're venomous and they sort of coil up like you kind of described. And they just sort of sit there and wait for you to make a mistake. Most people that are bitten in the United States are males between the ages of 18 and 30, and they're usually trying to catch them or kill them. There's not a snake in the world that can outrun a human. Snakes are pretty slow. They they look like they're moving really fast because of the the undulating movement and things. But the actual reality of how fast they're actually going, if you actually try to catch one or keep up with one, they're going quite slow. 
so yeah, with but with venomous snakes, they're sort of sitting there waiting for you to make a mistake, and it's really safe. Um, you can just sort of walk the other direction. So what would be a mistake? Would it be just moving towards them or doing any fast motion? Yeah, or, or being in their strike zone in a in a way in which they would that would actually instigate them to strike you. Okay, strike at you. Yeah, like you kind of see the the cobra snake charmer people in India and stuff like that. For example, no one does that with pit vipers. No one does that with rattlesnakes. Oh, okay. Um, this it's just too fast. You're not going to dodge it, and so. Once you're in that danger zone, uh, you're bit if the snake decides to do that. Chris, have you ever had like a dangerous interaction? You do a lot of hiking around the country. Have you ever like interacted with a snake in a way that was potentially dangerous? Um, I I've never really felt potential danger. I've I've interacted in the you know in the sense that I've been in the space of dangerous snakes, rattlesnakes, and timber rattlesnakes, and uh, copperhead snakes. Like I'm I'm from a part of the country where you know, poisonous snakes are part of the landscape. And so but I, I never had any interaction where I felt that I was in danger. Although when I was very young, my mom was convinced that I was always in danger when I walked out the door. And so I, I was, I grew up very much afraid of snakes. And yeah. I think it's partly because my mom thought that every snake was a copperhead and that every, every blade of grass had a copperhead behind it. And so uh, I, I feel like I, I was often very afraid of snakes, even even non-venomous snakes when I was little. But uh, I've never had any situation where a snake going to strike me or where there was danger or I mean, even with rattlesnakes and, and copperheads, I've never had any snake like be aggressive towards me. I did once have a friend who had, I want to say it was a, oh God, it was some kind of uh, green tree, like it was an arboreal viper that he had you know, in a kind of uh, aviary type enclosure. So it was just behind some chicken wire. Mm -hmm. And it was when I walked in his room, the thing aggressively struck into the wire that was sort of near my head. And it would surely have just hit me in the face and bitten me in the face had it not been for the chicken wire. Wow. But that's as dangerous I'd ever got. In preparation for this conversation, I was reflecting on how realistic our fears are about certain kinds of animals. And it struck me that at least my, I have the impression that snakes are not nearly as dangerous as our human anxiety about them. That our perception of snakes is that they're extremely dangerous in, in almost all contexts. But in reality, the, in the vast majority of situations, most snakes are not nearly as dangerous as we think they are. Yeah, I think from, a, from, an, from an American or Australian or European perspective, I think that's, that's accurate. But the fear of snakes would predate the movement out of Africa of, of Homo sapiens, and I think it, uh, primates seem to be universally afraid of snakes. Huh. Um, there was actually a lecture that was a very famous, prominent herpetologist thinks that our fear of snakes comes from being eaten by snakes. That only happens about maybe once a year at most. Um, but venomous snakes kill tens of thousands of people every year. And the other thing is, it's not just you know normally you wouldn't have a, a record of which snakes are venomous, which snakes are not. And so for the majority of human history and the majority of humans even today. There's no real confidence in that what you're dealing with is a non-venomous snake versus a venomous snake. So it's best to be scared of all snakes in general. There's also no benefit to not being scared of snakes. It would be the other reason why we potentially have a lot of fear. So evolutionarily, killing a snake, you could eat it. But there's not really a whole lot of benefit short of that uh, about snakes. And so they're only a detriment. And so being scared of them is only beneficial from a evolutionary perspective. And I would, I would think is the reason why we have such a vast fear of snakes. In preparation for this, I was just, I saw a video attempting to teach people how to recognize snakes versus some lizards that people mistake for snakes. 
And its suggestion was you could look at their eyes because lizards mm -hmm. actually blink and snakes don't blink. And I thought that actually is one of the reasons why they might be creepy to us <laughs> because yeah. animals that don't blink, there's something that seems wrong about animals that don't blink. Now, that is something weird about snakes that I don't, I don't associate with lots of other creatures. Yeah. My, I mean, my broad understanding is that, that people tend to respond less positively to other organisms that are not physiologically, phenotypically similar to us. So uh, especially with snakes, they, they move in ways that are very alien to us. They, uh, th like their heads and their, like their, their bodies, right. Are, are, are very foreign to like the way human bodies are structured. And I, I've never heard the thing about blinking. It, it is the, the, the fact that they have eyes is probably something that works in their favor because we do seem to like things that have eyes. So we like, we like to look in the eyes of things. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe maybe it's just the eyes are the thing that is more important than the blinking. Huh. But yeah, I think there's there's a, a lot to, you know, like snakes, the, the sensing with the tongue. It's just there's so many things about snakes that are so far into like human experience of the world that makes it hard for us to relate to them, I think. Yeah, it's a fun thing to kind of explore a little bit because I was thinking, well, dogs kind of walk around with their tongues out all the time. We find that kind of charming. So you're right. It seems like snakes, because of the way their bodies move, there's something about the, that kind of um, undulating that both seems kind of um, – there's something kind of sensual about the way snakes move. But it also doesn't seem uh, – it's also it's, – it's discomforting to people, I think, for most people to see a snake moving. It's it's interesting to me. I'm I'm not a fan of the horror film genre, mm -hmm. but the the little experience I have with it is that it's often the case that when you see when you see movies trying to depict people in sort of especially grotesque ways, they often make them move like snakes. Oh, that's really interesting. So if you if you imagine like a human who's like whose arms are sort of pinned to their side and like they have to kind of move with their torsos and their, and their sort of hips, when people are depicted as very foreign and strange and sort of horrifying, often part of the way they do that is to make them move like insects or snakes, something that's sort of biologically more remote from us. Yeah, Voldemort in the movies, his, his, the way they made his face and his nose kind of look snake-like. That's really interesting. Chris, I'm curious if there's, um, if there's like an environmental ethics angle about snakes. Does, do snakes come up in your classes? And not not for any you know there's there's no like bias against snakes although i will say the the one of the questions that somehow is often kind of peripheral to some conversations questions about the like the fear of snakes or a fear of snakes is sort of natural to humans or whether it is uh sort of culturally learned right it, it's a kind of nature nurture question hmm. but it's you know usually in a classroom context it's it, it's it's very clear <laughs> That when you have the students who are super big fans of reptiles and herps and snakes, like those are the students who are always like, no, there's no way it's natural to people. Yeah. Mm. And then other people who are very scared of snakes are like, of course, it's natural to people. So, you know, half the time, the way that, you know, people who aren't doing the research answer that it's just an expression of their own. They're just universalizing their own feelings. Right. Yeah, I think it is innate. But like most things, children can be taught something else and so for example when i was um the times that i've tried to uh show kids snakes there's not really a scenario in which i can i think there's been a case where like a child under the age of seven let's say wasn't willing to hold a snake that i said was completely harmless hmm. and yet at the same 
in the same manner, there are people that I can say, this is a completely harmless snake. There's no way it can hurt you. And people that are at probably age over the age, like say 25, it's impossible to get them to hold it. There seems to be a scenario in which people are learning from older individuals about the safety of things. And that's really interesting. So that suggests that it might develop, like, the fear might develop over time or yeah, that, I guess there's a couple different ways you could interpret that. I feel like uh, we obviously know that it's innate in other primates and things like that, but I think um, our species seems to have this ability to, to learn from previous generations pretty well to the point where we can counteract that innate fear. Um, there's lots of research on people's, the way in which we think baby animals are cute because their eyes are sort of larger than, you know, in proportion to their heads. And there's these little um, markers of cuteness. Snakes, it seems to me, don't have any of that. There's no point in which people, there's no adorable snake. (laughs) At least not from my perspective, Robert. Maybe you feel differently when you look at a copperhead. There is something about baby snakes that is kind of cute, but I probably, I'm probably one of the few people that sort of sees that. But I also like adult snakes, and I kind of think they're kind of cooler. Huh. But I do get your perspective of baby humans, like the 40% of its body's head, apparently, I think, when they come out. And whereas snakes, it's like, it's not as a dramatic of difference in, in proportions. And because they're not, re- with reptiles in particular, you kind of have to get started immediately, killing prey. And so you kind of have to have the same proportions as your adult counterparts. Yeah, I had never thought of that before, but I think that's the reason why they don't seem as cute, because they really have to be the same proportions. Speaking of food, Robert, have you ever eaten a snake before? <laughs> yes, I have. Um, <laughs> what kind of snake? A copperhead. Yeah. Really? So we were, yeah, I was uh, out with some some friends and we were looking for snakes on the road and uh, we were driving, we've been driving for, for a while and on our way back, we noticed that somebody had ran over the snake. It wasn't us, but it was some other person. So it was a freshly killed uh, copperhead. And so one of the guys uh, thought it'd be neat to uh, fry that up and so, wow. um, and keep the skin and stuff. And so I tried it. Um, not too impressed. Um, it seemed like it was like kind of like a pork chop kind of thing. Really? Was it kind of oily? Um, for me, it reminded me of a pork chop. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of ribs because there's just so much bones you have to get through. And with snakes, it was even worse than that. Yeah. Chris, I'm assuming you don't have experience eating a lot of snakes. <laughs> no, I've never had one either. I've never eaten a snake of any of any variety. Uh, Robert, earlier you said venomous snakes. Did I get this right? Venomous snakes kill tens of thousands of people a year. Yes. Is that in the United States or globally? No, in the United States, Europe and Australia, it's usually around six each, maybe even less in Europe, six individuals. Okay. Yeah. but So six people a year get killed in US, Europe, and you said, is it Australia? Australia, is yeah. It's very, very few. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So where are most of these? Is it Africa? Where are most venomous snakes killing people? Yeah. Africa and Southeast Asia um, in particular, but also Central and South America get quite a few thousands of deaths uh, every year. And so Africa, Sri Lanka, India. Southeast Asia. Is it because there are more dangerous snakes there or is there something else going on? Combination of things. Uh, in particular, I would say somewhat more dangerous snakes, um, but also access to medication seems to be a, a big part of it oh. and things like that. Sort of having a uh, larger body mass. The kind of people that are getting bit, like I said before, in the United States and Europe and Australia are, like I said, males between the ages of 18 and 30, essentially uh, maybe Perhaps physiologically or, or mass-wise, you're able to handle more venom than a child or a okay. person who's perhaps malnourished and access to medical care post-bite is probably an issue as well. So I want to talk about snake venom. Mm-hmm. That's also something I don't know much about, but it seems really provocative and odd. How many animals evolved to produce venom? Oh, okay. How common is that? I mean, it's a, it's a really important, you know, when you think about it from a perspective of, 
a defensive and an, and an aggressive uh, stance. It's it's really critical. I mean, you're able to if you've been stung by even a honeybee, like you understand how how effective that is to get away from something that's you know thousands of times smaller than you. And so if you didn't if yeah. didn't have that little bit of venom, um, so no, across the animal kingdom, kind of like eyeballs, the utility of being able to see is even just light and dark, just like a little bit of you know being able to see shadows kind of thing is, is a huge improvement over not being able to see at all. Uh, same thing with with venom. And so across the animal kingdom, from jellyfish to various insects to chordates, so, you know, reptiles and, and things, platypus, even in mammals, we've got the platypus that has venom. And so really, yeah. So the, the little spurs on the back oh. of the male platypuses, so they they have uh, venom. It's apparently quite painful. And so yeah, across the animal kingdom. Uh, venoms, but even uh, toxins in general. Like, I mean, we like cilantro because it tastes, it's a certain flavor that we have, but the plant isn't giving that cilantro this, this taste we enjoy because we, because it wants us to enjoy our food better. It's a toxin. It's something that's, that's, that when you, when you break a pine needle or something like that, that thing, that aroma that we smell that we might enjoy is a real deterrent to some insect that's going to eat that plant. And so the investment of chemical warfare is really important for a lot of species. I personally, I'm always interested in the ways in which we often interpret things like your cilantro example, Robert, like we interpret this as this is just a delicious thing. And isn't it like wonderful how the natural world is sort of like meeting our human needs, but it's, it's, you forget that the, the sort of biological dimension of this is that you're just, you're just, you know, coincidentally benefiting from something that this plant is trying to do. I, my example all the time is maple syrup. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Maple trees do not have high sugar content so that you can have a sugary treat on your pancakes. It's a, it's a defense against uh, cold snaps in the spring. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's just an evolutionary defense against living in places where spring temperatures can vary a lot. And sugar actually helps with uh, certain kinds of biological processes when you're living through those cold snaps. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what that is. And like, that's not, that's the maple tree living its life in the way that's distinctive of a maple tree and you just happen to come along and find a way to exploit it. Exactly. So it's like if a, if a copperhead's venom was like delicious, yeah. <laughs> that's, that would just be, that's then we'd have like copperhead pancake syrup or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how, I mean, in movies, people get bit by a snake and you know, they're like instantly dead oh, yeah. or minutes later they die or something like that. If a, if a, copperhead were to bite you are do, you, do your friends just start saying farewell and how much they enjoyed your friendship or what is the best move at that point yeah certainly not for a copperhead uh, i'm not sure how many fatalities have been attributable to copperheads but it's pretty rare you probably just get a lot of swelling you might get some necrosis okay. after a while um, i've met people that have had uh sort of bad copperhead bites and they've lost pieces of their finger and things like that okay but no there's not really any venomous snakes um that could really kill you that quickly, I don't think. There's a lot of like stories about people dying really quickly from venomous snakes, but I don't know how many confirm confirmations of that. Like there's a hundred pace snake, but it, I don't think because the idea is that if you get bit, you got a hundred paces and then you die. Um, but that's sort of one of these tales that doesn't seem to measure up when we actually look at it with actual medical records. A hundred pace snake, that is a great name for a snake. It sounds like a, a, a creature in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. But you're saying that's not super realistic. <laughs> no, there's a lot of... There is a real snake called a hundred pace snake, but in fact, you have more than a hundred paces if it bites you. Yeah, the um, venom usually takes a while to, to react. I mean, it's got to go through the bloodstream or in various places and interact and, and act a certain way. Uh, usually, you'd probably have cardiac arrest to be the ones you'd be worried about, some nervous hmm. system 
toxin would probably be the most concerning. Um, or if you've got real bad hemorrhaging and some real internal bleeding issues, but usually that takes quite a while. Some of these, like the few herpetologists that have been killed by venomous snakes, it's taken days um, in those cases uh, for people to die from those things. Is it is that because I'm interested in the fact that you said in the United States, in Europe, in Australia, it's actually really rare to be killed by a snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that because of the kind of snakes or is it because people have closer access to medical care? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would attribute all of it to the medical industry, but I also think it has to do with okay. um, in the same way that a lot of people are saved through uh, having clean water and stuff like that as well. Um, right. So access to uh, just a healthy existence and, and being a heavier person, you know, which has its downfalls as well. But uh, just somebody being healthy in general uh, helps out. And then also, the, like I was saying before, the people that are getting bit typically are males between the age of 18 and 30. And it's arguably the time that someone is sort of optimally, if you were going to get bit in your life, that's sort of when you want to do it most likely. Are there different kinds of venom that do different things or is all venom, snake venom basically doing the same couple of things? Like, you know, it's killing, no, it's killing healthy flesh or something. Yeah. It's doing very different things. And so you're dealing with, um, okay. I mean, the basic way of thinking about it is neurotoxin versus uh, hematoxin. And that's sort of what's been okay. perpetuated out there is that you've got this neurotoxin that's affecting the nervous system. And so people will go to cardiac arrest or have a diaphragm muscles be paralyzed or something like that, depending on the venom that you're going through. But also there's the hematoxin, which sort of des- destroys tissue, causes internal bleeding. But typically, I guess they the more they study, it, they realize that most snakes have a combination of these things. And it also depends on what your prey item is, because some venom would react more to the, to a lizard than a, than a mouse of the same size and vice versa. And so the, the physiology of the prey item matters a lot, apparently. I'm interested in, is there a particular snake that is sort of considered the most dangerous uh, or is it sort of depend on the context? What makes the snake dangerous? Yeah. that's a, that, What's the snake you would least like to run into, Robert? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a tough one. Um, Bushmaster, there's, there's one of the species of Bushmasters, I forget which one, has a really high mortality rate. There's another species of Bushmaster that hmm. doesn't have near the mortality rate. Um, Terciopelos in Central America that I've caught, those would be something I would not want to get bit by. Um, black mambas are on that list. King cobras, uh, Russell's vipers. So there's a few things um, that are on that list that are kind of standard, but I'm not sure if I have a top 10, but I, there are definitely ones that I'm more or less concerned about than others. You know, part of what I find really interesting about this conversation, and maybe I, I, I guess I knew that you studied snakes. I didn't realize you studied specifically venomous snakes. Mm-hmm. The way I expected this conversation to go is that most of it would be sort of in defense of snakes. Huh? Uh, snakes are more afraid of us than we are of them, that we uh, kill a lot more snakes than they kill us. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of, you know, um, you mentioned that younger in life, you're interested in sharks. I think I was thinking of it like that. Mm-hmm. There's this like... Uh, just terrible fear that human beings have of sharks. But in reality, you know, there are not tens of thousands of people being killed by sharks. We just are overly frightened of them. Um, But until this conversation, I didn't realize that (laughs) snakes are really killing tens of thousands of people. So, Chris, that was part of what I was interested in talking to you about, that uh, we're more of a problem to the snake environment than the snake is to our environment. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, regardless of how many snakes uh kill people or how, how many people are killed by snakes each year i mean we, we're you know the the conversation that the snakes are having about us <laughs> yeah. is a very different conversation yeah um 
my, my right, I'm sure Robert knows way more about this than I do. I mean, it's my sense from what I do know is that, you know, it's largely habitat loss. I mean, so like the sort of individual persecution of snakes, right? People killing snakes, that's, that's part of it. But I think the bigger part of it is just that we destroy habitat. To uh, highlight venomous snakes, there's actually is an, ex- an additional, there's a group that sort of evaluates the, in, you know, whether how a species is threatened and endangered. And based on the point system that it gets, it makes the species of more concern or less from a conservation perspective. And venomous snakes actually get added a couple of a point or two because they're more sought after in killing. So if we're talking about conservation of species and things, uh, venomous snakes tend to get, and also because they sort of sit there and wait, whereas a non-venomous snake tends to just go as fast as it can in, or in another direction. And so it's probably less likely to get killed. And so there's actually some added conservation issues or concerns for venomous snakes. Yeah, and then the, the vitriol that people have towards venomous snakes in particular uh, is, because a lot of people are like, they would like to see, they understand the benefits of snakes, but they're concerned about venomous snakes. The, the other part of this that's like that's you know it's it's not it's not the major player in the sort of snake con- conservation conversation uh is the pet trade oh. and i don't i don't know if there's a sort of greater interest in the pet trade in um in venomous snakes mm-hmm. but i could certainly see where there's a certain demographic of people that would much rather have a venomous snake as a pet than a non-venomous snake that there's some kind of allure of like the dangerous snake that drives aspects of the pet trade. Yes. Yeah, and that's a huge issue for conservation and things like that. Um, the pet trade, I might be getting the statistics wrong, but when I was in graduate school at University of Texas at Arlington, when we were um, we were looking at the pet trade, the import and export of, legal, the legal import and export of snakes into the United States, uh, just for the pet trade, was in the millions. And to put that in perspective, that was more than all these snakes that were in museums like Smithsonian, Harvard, uh, Berkeley, our collection, which was really large, and all these things. And so the pet trade was have a bigger impact environmentally in a single year than and just in the United States, not including all the European uh, pet trade. Robert, maybe maybe you know some statistic like this. I don't I don't know any statistic related specifically to snakes and the pet trade, but I do know that you know with tropical fish, so a, a lot of animals that are in the pet trade are are wild caught, mm-hmm. right? So like a lot of snakes, they're just wild caught and they go into the pet trade. It's the same with tropical fish. Mm-hmm. So a lot of tropical fish, the vast majority of tropical fish that, that you can get are wild caught, that it's really hard actually to breed tropical fish in captivity. And so they wild catch them. Uh, there was a stat from National Geographic a while back, somewhere you know in kind of early 20, 21st century. And they were saying that fully 90% of the fish that are caught to be, to be used in the pet trade die before they make it into anybody's tank. Yep. Hmm. So, you know, of like the millions and millions of fish that come into the pet trade, you know, 90% of them die. I would suspect that that would be true of snakes too, right? That like, that a lot of times the people who are bringing snakes into the pet trade are not giving them especially good care. Yep. So that, you know, for every venomous snakes that show up, there's probably 50 that died on the way. Yeah, same with parrots and, and things like that. Yeah, the parrot trade's a big one like that. Same scenario, the smuggling of these these animals. And um, the act of smuggling is oftentimes a, a big challenge with um, the animal survival. So they'll take tortoises, for example, and they'll put them in socks and put them in luggage. And a bunch of them don't make it through that process and stuff. And so, yeah, it's a, wow. it's a real challenge. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big concern for scientists to do we actually want to let people know where these things are found that could be 
you know, on the pet trade and stuff. And so it's something that we've had to deal with. The other thing I discovered just Googling, looking at YouTube videos of snakes is there's lots of videos of uh, snake piles, and, and, you know, and um, I'd never seen anything like that. Um, all these writhing bodies. I'm making it sound a lot more pleasant than it actually yeah. is. It actually looked terrifying and creepy. And I could not figure out how snakes even know what the hell's going on <laughs> in these writhing piles. I'm curious. So uh, I'd be very interested in you talking about how snakes reproduce and how these piles of snakes actually succeed in making more snake babies. Yeah. So when you think about most species, they're like even a frog can climb up. Uh, a tree and, and and call and and hear the voice of the sound of the and it can attract females from a distance with its call and you've got different colors of a lot of animals but with snakes they're really even if they're arboreal they're still trying to blend into the trees they're they're really needing to uh, blend in in order to get their prey items and to not be eaten and so there's not really a lot of visual signals for reproduction there's no auditory because they can't hear anything uh, they can't hear airborne sounds and stuff so now you're stuck with very few senses. And so one of the most powerful senses for them is going to be the scent. And so what tends to happen is that a female sort of releases pheromones during the right uh, season, and she kind of goes across the landscape. The males are sort of going in some random direction, and all of a sudden they come across this trail left by a female. And if they start losing that scent, they can just turn around and go towards that scent. And the problem that a lot of these female snakes are probably dealing with is going to be that you're going to get unwanted advances from male snakes and a lot of male snakes essentially so you're getting you're trying to get a, a mate but you're going to get potentially quite a few of them and so there is some selection that females can have once you get in those balls of snakes and there's also some selection that the males can have to ensure that they are the only male that fertilizes those eggs so things like sperm plugs and stuff like that and then snakes have hemipenes they actually have two uh, penises and a lot of them actually have spines on them and what they do, and there's a couple things they can do. One is to actually um, make sure they copulate. And so you actually have these spines to sort of ensure that you're staying in, because a lot of females will do rolls and stuff like that to dislodge a male uh, hemipene. But you can also, if you have spines on your uh, hemipene, you can also get rid of a previous male's sperm plug and things like that. That's really interesting. You know, as much as we talked about how different snakes are from us, their their reproductive process is actually very understandable. It's not yeah. like they're doing something <laughs> completely different than what most uh, you know mammals do to reproduce. At least the way you described it. Yeah, you're you're basically it's just a different. We're not familiar with the ways in which they find somebody attractive, right? And so there has been some conversations or some studies about like how the male maneuvers and, and touches and things like that for potential, how the female is receptive to the, to the males. But potentially it has a lot to do with pheromones and the smells, which is something that we have in some respects, but not in the same way that other animals do with the, the scent having a big role in our attractiveness. Are snakes, are they in more danger when they're in, involved in these like snake uh, orgy processes? I would imagine so, yeah. I imagine you're probably not paying much attention to it. It's such a rare event that you really got to focus on that. Yeah, I would think so. Oh, it's rare. Do snakes don't like reproduce like every six months or something? It's even a couple times a lifetime for a snake. Snakes are kind of at the bottom of the food web kind of thing. And so um, even if you were successful to reproduce every year, it's not like a deer where you're having multiple interactions per season. Um, and then even if you did, you might not have that for too many seasons. And so before you get eaten by a hawk or something and so somewhat rare. And so you're probably really focused on that at the time. 
the question that I had about that was being from the mid-Atlantic where we have both copperheads and, you know, occasionally sort of some parts of the mid-Atlantic cotton mouths. It's interesting because one of the one of the sort of uh, like rural legends, like as opposed to an urban legend, is the the rural legend of like the giant ball of cotton mouths coming down the river, getting in your boat. Like that was like I feel like all of my friends knew of like this. We lived near a river and we played by a river all the time. And there was always this myth of like, watch out for the snake balls. And I've never seen one. And it sounds like it's a pretty, pretty rare occurrence anyway. But it's it's also interesting that um, it sounds like from what you're describing that it's like it's predominantly male snakes trying to have at a particular female. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Typically what I've and I actually haven't seen that many mating balls of snakes um, in my profession. And so um, I would say it's pretty rare. Uh, I've only seen male to male combat, I think, once. And that's also pretty rare. We have males sort of fighting for a particular area. And so any of that sort of reproductive stuff, I think pretty rare. Usually you see snakes being pretty quite solitaire. The idea, there's a lot of rural, you know, mythology about like the nest of cotton mouths and things. And so growing up in, in parts of the South, people would always be like, oh, this lake had a nest of cotton mouths that a couple of years ago, a kid fell into. And there's always sort of these mythologies, even in the, especially in the South, but you never hear about like who the person was and who said it. And so you start trying to go down the line and no one ever really has an answer for you. But I'm really interested in the idea that snakes are um, solitary, that they're not like social creatures. They, snakes don't hang out with each other, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, well, there's no there's no benefit in the same way like, um, yeah. you know, they're not, you know, when you think about an animal that gets injured, that's a social creature, it's going to have a very different reaction because there's a potential of needing protection or help from another animal. So if you're in pain and you're a social animal, you're going to yell out and scream or something like that. Whereas if you're not, there's no benefit to, to yelling out or making a noise. And so... A lot of the times we sort of have this thought that things don't feel pain like like we do because they're not reacting the same way, even though that there's no we react a certain way because there's a benefit that if we show people around us that we're in pain, we might get some help. But a, but a solitary species isn't going to have that. And so, yeah, you mentioned the first thing you said, Robert, is uh, your interest in the evolutionary history of snakes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, like when snakes lost their legs in the Bible. <laughs> but I actually was really interested in how much have snakes evolved? <laughs> Yeah. They seem like they could practically be dinosaurs now. Yeah, so I think his, so legless, leglessness has, has evolved numerous times in lizards. It seems that for the lineage of snakes, um, there was recently a fossil in Israel where they found that a lizard that they think might be the one of the origins for legless for snakes uh, about 90 million years ago in Israel. And there's been this debate about whether snakes lost their legs through becoming fossorial or not, or some other way. What does that mean, fossorial? Uh, living underground. All the lizards, um, to my knowledge, that have lost limblessness or even reduced limbs, it's because they've gotten, gone fossorial, where they actually start living under the ground and, and not spending as much time in the uh, above ground. And so there's some good evidence for that, that every single time that we've seen limb loss in snakes, it's because of that. That's actually helpful to understand because it, it, it struck me just intuitively, evolution is about animals sort of gaining certain advantages or adapting to their environment in a way that is helpful. It seems like losing limbs doesn't have much value. Intuitively, you would think yeah, yeah. growing limbs is the thing you'd really want to do. So it's interesting to hear you say this has to do with the snake environment. There might be an environment in which uh, being uh, more streamlined actually could help you move. Yeah, if you if you're trying to live under the ground, having limbs is a big issue. Yeah, having it's not it's a big detriment. Same thing with cave fishes. You know, you think about uh, eyesight being beneficial, and why wouldn't you have eyes? But the second you lose light, 
within a couple of generations, you lose the ability to see. So all these cave fish, cave salamanders, all those kind of things across all kinds of different species, they lose eyesight very quickly because it's a physiologically costly process. And so you're basically expending a lot of energy for no benefit whatsoever. And so in just a couple of generations, you lose the ability to see and you really hard to get that back, even if you have a lot of the structures um, there. They still have eyes, but they're not wow. really functional. I just, you know, just uh, sort of broad, more broad than that. It's like what whatever snakes are doing, I mean, it's like it's remarkably successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Snakes are just a, such a remarkably successful class of organisms mm-hmm. that even 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 with the fear and the persecution and even with Genesis, like attributing the fall of humanity to them. <laughs> Sometimes it's just amazing to me how how well organisms can do, even like they're so foreign, right? They're just they're so different from kind of human existence. And yet they are they've been around way longer than us. I mean, yeah. this arguably they're going to be around a lot longer. Uh, and it's just it's you know, it's like horseshoe crabs. They're like 65 million for, for I don't know, for maybe for more than 400 million years old evolutionarily. And you just think like they, they are kind of like dinosaurs. But man, there's something about that model that just has worked really well for a super long time. Chris Deem is an environmental ethicist, Robert Jaden, a biologist. Uh, This is an incredibly fun conversation. I was interested both in these biological questions have about snakes, but also like our relationship with snakes and snakes environment and and what we project onto other animals. It was really fun to bring you two together and and have this conversation. Thanks so much for being really grateful. Yeah, you two. We haven't met before, Robert, but it was really nice to meet you and have this conversation. Super interesting. Yeah, I haven't met either one of you guys. It's been great. I've heard you guys' podcast, and so the really famous one, apparently. And so the famous. I I heard that one, and it was uh, it was good. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Thank you for listening to No Cure for Curiosity, my podcast for curious people. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Deem and Robert Jaden, and I am excited for you to hear some of my upcoming episodes. Please rate and review No Cure for Curiosity in your favorite podcast app, or tell some friends and help spread a little curiosity. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Learn more about UW-Stevens Point and all our programs at uwsp.edu.